Welcome to Ebenezer's Podcast, a podcast about hearing, understanding, and applying the Word of God to our lives. My name is Leighton Erickson, and I'm Ebenezer's Lead Pastor. Thanks for joining us today. Please check out our website at ebenezerbaptist.ca to connect with us and learn more about our ministries. I hope you enjoy the message. Good morning. <laughs> I want to welcome you all here to Ebenezer this morning. Uh, I want to also welcome those who are joining online. It's great to have you with us as well. My name is Wes Hodgson, and I serve here on the pastoral staff, and uh, it's a pleasure and an honor to be sharing with you this morning. Two weeks ago, we began our new summer series that we have entitled uh, Ten, and we are going to be looking specifically at the Ten Commandments and going through each one week at a time. And today I have the privilege of looking at the third commandment, uh, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Uh, But before we jump in, uh, I would just like to pray. I know Pastor Grace just prayed, but prayer just kind of helps me kind of center my mind as we jump into teaching. And so if you would pray with me, I would greatly appreciate that. Father, we thank you so much for this day and this opportunity that we have to gather together in your name, and to hear from your word. God, we thank you that your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword dividing between joint and marrow. We thank you that it has the power to teach us, to correct us, to rebuke us, and lead us into all righteousness. And so, God, we ask that as we open your word today, that you would speak to us, Holy Spirit, that you would say the things that you know we all need to hear. I pray for everyone here who is in this room and who is online, Lord, that you would speak to them a clear word from you, that whatever is of you, God, as I share this morning, that it would land on good soil, and what is not of you would just fall to the wayside. And so we ask this for your honor. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, over the last two weeks, Pastor Layton and Pastor Grace have unpacked the first two commandments for us. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make any graven images and bow down to it. And in both of these images, they both did a great job of diving into the depths of those commands and helping us see how these commands work like a a hedge of protection around us and how God actually intends to bring about our flourishing and our thriving if we would be obedient to these commandments. And before we dive in specifically to our third commandment for this morning, I wanted to briefly stop and just ask a question that maybe some of us are asking in regards to the Old Testament. I know it's a question that I have asked myself, and I know it's a question that actually the New Testament seeks to answer in a number of occasions, and that is simply this. Do the Old Testament laws still apply to us today as Christians? Are these laws, both the Ten Commandments, but also the literal hundreds of laws, there are over 600 in the Old Testament Scriptures, laws that God gives to His people, are these commands still applicable for us today? 
And maybe some of us have given a lot of time and space into thinking through that. Maybe we've done a a deep study into God's Word. Maybe for some of us, we've never even thought around that question before. Does that even still apply to us today? So I want us to take a moment to look at that this morning. Right before God gives these famous commandments in Exodus chapter 20, He addresses Moses in Exodus 19, and he says this, starting at verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me and fully keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession." Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. You see, God called Israel to be a holy nation unto himself, that the people of Israel might reflect God's goodness, his wisdom, his character to the nations around him. This was God's original plan to bring about the restoration and the redemption of the whole earth. And the way in which God was going to make Israel a holy nation was through the Old Covenant. And I'm going to reread verse 5 for you. Listen in closely. This is what God says. Now, if you fully obey me and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. See, both through Israel's obedience to the old covenant and God's covenant faithfulness working together, this was how God was going to bring his blessing and his redemption to the ends of the earth. He was going to use Israel as his chosen people to represent him and bring about his plan of redemption, that the nations might come to know him. But in order for Israel to fulfill their calling, they needed to be close to God. They needed to actually be walking in relationship with Him. And a sinful, broken people actually cannot get close to a holy and righteous God. It doesn't actually work. If you think for a moment, think of God's holiness like the sun. Okay, the sun is this giant force of pure, unbridled energy, and the closer something gets to it, the closer you get to the sun, the hotter it gets, and the sooner you get to that place, it's going to burn you up. That's kind of what the holiness of God is like. God's holiness is so pure. It is so, it is so, there's such a hatred of sin and evil that as, when we see it in the Old Testament, when people get close to the holiness of God and they are not in right standing, they perish. They die. That, that's what God's holiness is like. You, you cannot be in the presence of sin. And so this becomes a problem because God's people whom he has chosen are broken, and they actually can't get close to him, and therefore they can't fulfill the calling that God intends for them. And so God has to set up a system in order for the people of God to be in close proximity to him so that they can fulfill the calling that he has for them. This is what the Old Covenant is all about. It's a system that God set in place in order for the sinful, broken people of Israel to get close to a holy and righteous God, and they could live out their calling. And these are what the Old Testament laws are about. How can they actually get close to a holy God? 
Now, I want to make sure that we're clear. The Old Testament in general, as well as the book of Leviticus in particular, are full of laws and regulations about what the people of God could do and what they couldn't do in order to be close to God. But not all of these laws are exactly the same. There are differences around them, and we need to understand these in order for it to make sense today. Throughout the book of Leviticus, the people of God were given multiple laws, literally hundreds of them, I kid you not, about how these broken people were to live in relationship with a holy God. And there are two ways that we can look at these laws today to, to help bring clarity to us. The first is what I would call ceremonial or ritual laws, and the other category is what we would call moral laws. Now, the ceremonial or the ritual laws given to the people of Israel, they were a way to distinguish Israel as a set-apart people from the other people groups around them. And we're just going to look at a few specific examples. So some of these laws included things like specific dietary restrictions, okay? The Israelites were not permitted to eat shellfish or to eat pork. Those foods were off-limits to them. They could not eat them. Some of the other examples, they were not to wear clothes made of two different types of materials. Uh, the men were not to cut their hair or their beards at the sides. They were not to cut their bodies or to uh, cut themselves in a way as to, uh, you know, to honor the dead. And they were not to tattoo themselves. These were all specific to the people of Israel as a way of setting them apart. But the law is also filled with what we would call moral laws. And while these laws were also to be a distinguishing factor to the people of Israel, we can see how God intended that these laws were to transcend Israel's boundaries and to bring blessing to the worlds around them. And I want to share with you a few of them found in Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19 verses 9 and 10 says this, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. Right, so right within the book of Leviticus, God is commanding his people, don't go over your crops again. What falls to the ground, you leave that there. It was almost sort of like, a, like an ancient social security system for the poor amongst them, right? Don't go over the land. Again, what drops to the ground, you let the poor come, and that will be a way of providing for them. Leviticus 19, verses 13 through 15. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Right? So you hire somebody for a job. Don't be like, oh yeah, we'll get, you, we'll get you later. No, you pay them right away. Be a person of integrity. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God. I am the Lord. Right? Don't mistreat those with disabilities. Right? These, these are moral laws that God is trying to institute amongst his people. And these are things that we would even agree today are still good and true. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Right? So if you're going in and you see a court case and you see a poor person over here, don't, don't just go like, oh, well, they're poor. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. Or, oh, this person's rich. I'm going to do that. No. 
act justly. What is the right decision? Don't, don't, uh, don't discriminate between the rich and the poor. Judge your neighbor fairly. Leviticus 19.18, he says this, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And see, God ordained all of these laws, both the ceremonial laws and the moral laws, in order to set Israel apart, right? So they're in their way of fulfilling the covenant was to be obedient to these laws and God would keep his faithfulness and through this relationship God intended to bring the blessing to the ends of the world. But what does that mean for us today as Christians? I don't know if you've ever experienced this when you're reading through the Old Testament and you're going through and you're reading these laws that God is commanding for his people to do, there's sort of this tension that rises up where you're going like, well, Okay, well, well, I'm part of the, I'm part of the people of God. <laughs> like, do these? Am I supposed to keep these laws? Like, because I don't. Like, I, I enjoy my bacon. Like, am I, am I supposed to keep these things? What am I supposed to do? How do I, how do I navigate this? Is it wrong for us to get it? Is it wrong for Christians to get a tattoo or to eat pork or shellfish? Should I, can I, do I have to go through all my clothes and be like, oh man, I have a, a cotton and a polyester mixed t-shirt. I can't wear this anymore. Like, what am I supposed to do with these laws? And so, just like you may have learned in Sunday school, the answer is always Jesus. The answer is always Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is always the answer for how we interpret the scriptures. I remember hearing this story of a, a Sunday school teacher once, and I'm, it's not true, but it's a funny story. The, the, the Sunday school teacher, she's looking at her class, and she says, okay, I'm thinking of a, a little animal, and it kind of jumps between trees to tree, and they grab all these nuts, and they put them together. What animal am I talking about? And this little boy pops up his hand, and then he like, kind of shoots it down. She's like, oh, what animal am I talking about? He's like, uh... Well, I, I think you're talking about a squirrel, but I guess I'll say Jesus. <laughs> um, you know, like, the answer is always Jesus. Yes, we understand. But this is true. When we interpret the scriptures, we are Christ followers, meaning we follow him, and he becomes the interpretive grid for how we understand the Old Testament. And we see Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 where he says this, starting at verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished." When Jesus arrives in the storyline of God, he doesn't do away with the law. He doesn't come on the scene and go like, oh, hey, guys, I'm here now. That's a really old book, so we're going to put that away because that doesn't really mean anything anyway. No, he does not get rid of the law. He doesn't. He comes on the scene and he says, I am the fulfillment of the law. Everything the law requires, everything the law put forward, 
He is the fulfillment of it. Jesus is the perfect embodiment of every single thing the law required, both the ceremonial laws and the moral laws. Jesus fulfills it all. The righteousness that God required of Israel, the righteousness, right, they were to obey his commands and they were to keep to his faithfulness. They never kept it. They fell short again and again and again. And Jesus never fell short. Jesus is the perfect embodiment of Israel, and he fulfills all of the righteous requirements that God put forward. So now in his death and in his resurrection, we who put our trust in Jesus, the Bible says that you are now gifted the righteousness of God. All of the righteous decrees, the righteous standards that God desired of his people, they were fulfilled in Jesus. And now God offers it to you freely in Christ. And he says, if you want to stand before me in righteousness, you stand before me in my son. Because Jesus fulfills all of the righteousness that the law required. Hundreds of years before Jesus. And, and, and in doing this, he creates a new covenant. Hundreds of years before Jesus, the prophet Jeremiah, he said this, that God would establish a new covenant with his people. And this is how he describes it in Jeremiah 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. Jesus declared that with his death and his resurrection, every time we celebrate communion, Every time we take the bread and we take the cup, we are celebrating the reality that we have been moved out of an old covenant reality and we are now children of the new covenant. We no longer relate to God on the basis of the law. We relate to God on the basis of Jesus. What Jesus has done on our behalf is enough. And we now come before the presence of God freely and openly, and we enjoy fellowship and communion with God, not, out of, not because we're going to earn our way there, but because Jesus has done everything to make the way possible. And when this reality becomes a place in our lives, when we enter into this new covenant, when we actually allow the Spirit of God to take up residence on the inside of us, Jeremiah says that God's going to write the law on your heart. He's going to write it on your mind. So now the law is not some arbitrary thing outside of us that we're trying to keep. The law is actually inside of us. It's actually the thing that we want to do. We want to obey God. We want to walk in, the, in, in his statutes. We want to walk in obedience to him. Not because we're earning anything, not because we're trying to, to merit his favor. No, but because he loves us, I now get to walk in step with the Spirit. And this is what I want to do. 
the, the desire to walk in holiness and the desire to know him. This is actually becomes what I want to do, not what I have to do. Paul puts it this way in the book of Galatians chapter 3, verses 24 and 25. He says this, So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. The law or the old covenant was to be fixed in place until Jesus came. But now that Jesus has come, we walk in step with him. That's what we are called to. Jesus has ushered us into a new covenant reality. And if we are children of that new covenant reality, we want to obey. We want to walk in step with God. And that's what makes a series like this for us so important. Is because if I'm a child of God and I'm living under the new covenant with the spirit of God and the promises of God alive on the inside of me, I want to keep the law right? I want to keep the law. It's not some like, dis like, oh, I guess I have to do that, or God's going to punish me if I don't keep it. It's like, I want to keep the law. That's what I want to do. The law has been written on the inside of me, and now I want to obey it. David says this in Psalm 119. He says, teach me, Lord, the way of your decrees that I may follow it to the end. Give me understanding so that I might keep your law. Give me understanding. Why? So that I can just get more head knowledge? No, give me understanding because I want to do it. I want to keep your laws. I want to walk in step with your ways. So give me that understanding. If your heart is inclined, you say, I want to love God with all of my heart, and I want to love my neighbor as myself. The Ten Commandments are not an arbitrary list of some rules for an ancient people. The Ten Commandments now become like a template or a grid to look through and go, wow, I can look at these through a new covenant reality and go, how do I love God more? And how do I love my neighbor like I love myself? And the Ten Commandments become this beautiful blueprint of actually how to do that. Because if the inclination of your heart is going, I want to love God with everything, and I want to love my neighbor like I love myself, then I'm, I'm not going to set other gods before God. And I'm not going to make graven images and bow down to them. I'm going to seek to honor the name of God. I'm going to seek to honor the Sabbath. And if I want to love my neighbor like I love myself, then I'm going to honor my mother and father. And I'm not going to lie. And I'm not going to murder. And I'm not going to cheat on my spouse. And, and did you get what I'm saying? You're now inclined towards it. You're not resistant. Does this make sense? And so for the rest of the morning, what we want to do is we want to look at the third commandment and ask ourselves, how can we learn to love God more by obeying this commandment? Not because we have to, but because we want to. And so the commandment is found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, and it says this. Exodus 20, verse 7 says this, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. There are two big questions I want us to answer this morning from this text. The first question is this. What does it mean to take something in vain? What does that practically mean? And second, why is this so significant in regards to God's name? So let's look at that first one. What does it mean to take something in vain? 
The word here used in Hebrew for in vain is the word shav. And it is described as a word meaning emptiness, falsehood, or futility. It denotes a sense of worthlessness, inconsequential, trivial, or a complete waste. Here are just a few of the ways that the Old Testament uses this word. In Psalm 12, verse 2, the psalmist says, Everyone lies. He uses the word shav there. Everyone lies to their neighbor. They flatter with their lips, but they harbor deception in their hearts. Right? So if anyone is ever just like, just flattering tongue, bold face lied to your face, inwardly they don't mean any of it. They're, they're, just, they're just kissing up. That's shav. It's pointless, it's trivial, it's meaningless. Psalm 60, verse 11, give us help against the enemy, for human help is worthless. Again, that's another use of the word shav there. Human help is worthless, it's pointless, it's not going to get it done. Or Isaiah, verse 1 through 113, this is God speaking against Israel. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Again, he uses the word shav there. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. This is pointless. It means nothing to you. Your incense is detestable to me. Your new moons and Sabbaths and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. So to take something in vain means you consider whatever you're taking in vain to be worthless. Whatever that thing is you're speaking of, you think it's pointless. It's trivial. It's completely inconsequential to you. It's not worth you being honest about, so you will settle for speaking lies. When you take something in vain, you think it's good for nothing, that nothing good will come of it. That's what it means to take something in vain. And the reason why it's a big deal to take God's name in vain is the same reason it's, that, that it's a big deal to make a graven image. Pastor Grace did a great job last week of sharing how when people create idols, those idols lie about the reality of who God is to his people. And it's no different when we take God's name in vain. When we consider the name of God to be of inconsequence, it's no meaning, it's pointless, it's trivial. Those ideas lie to us about the truth of who God really is. A.W. Tozer said that the most important thing about you is what you think about God. The most important reality about who you are is what comes into your mind when you think about God and what you think he is like. It will shape and map the entire course of your life. And now think about this for a moment as God takes these slaves out of Egypt and he brings them to himself to make them his own people. This is how he begins the list of 10 commandments. I'm gonna paraphrase it a bit, but just try to track with what I'm saying. Exodus 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of slavery. You will have no other gods before me. You will not make for yourself any graven images from heaven above or earth below. You will not take my name in vain. What is God doing here? Do you notice a pattern in these first three commandments? God is trying to establish in the minds and the hearts of these people who he has brought to himself. He is trying to establish in their minds and hearts. You need to think rightly about who I am, and you need to speak rightly 
about who I am. He's trying to, because when, when the image and the name of God in our minds is broken and it's distorted, it is devastating in our lives. If the image you have of God in your mind is not true, it will lead to devastation in your life. But if the name of God, if who God is and the image you have of him is correct, it's grounded in the truth, it will lead to your healing. It will lead to a restored life. God is seeking through these commands to help, him, to help his people think about him correctly, to see him clearly, and to speak of him honestly. And the second question for us, why is this so significant in regards to God's name? I think we've already answered some of that. But in our society today, we tend to name people because we like how the name sounds. Right? When we're naming our children or we're naming things, it's usually we go with what's popular at the time or what sounds good. We don't give a lot of thought to the significance of what the name actually means. But in the scriptures, names are highly, highly significant. They speak to a person's character. They're not just a title that they happen to carry. And it's the same with God's name. So when someone is flippant, or they're irreverent, or they don't really, they, they treat God's name like it's trivial. They're not insulting a name, they're insulting the character of who carries that name. They're being irreverent towards God himself. God's name isn't simply a title. It's a way in which he wants to reveal himself to us. And throughout the scriptures, God reveals himself by many names. From Genesis to Revelation, when God reveals his name to his people, he is trying to show another aspect of who he is to the people he's speaking to. To Abraham, he says, I am Jehovah Jireh, the Lord our provider. To Moses in the desert, he says, I am Jehovah Rapha, the Lord our healer. To Gideon in the book of Judges, he says, I am Jehovah Shalom, the Lord our peace. To Ezekiel, he says, I am Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is here. To Isaiah, he says, his name is Emmanuel, God with us. And he will also be called Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. To the used and abused maidservant Hagar, God reveals himself to her as El Roi, the God who sees me. Jesus says to us that he is the good shepherd of his sheep. He is the bread of life come down from heaven. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the way and the truth and the life. He is the true vine and we are the branches. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. Jesus tells us to hallow his name, to gather in his name, to pray in his name. His name is our fortress, it's our protection, his name is our provision, it's our strength. And one day Philippians 2 says that one day every knee will bow at the name of Jesus and every tongue confess that he is Lord. That is his name. That is his name. That is who he is. And I could go on and on about the different names of God, but they are not merely titles, they are a revelation of who he is. The names of God are not pointless, they are not trivial, they are not worthless, they reveal the truth that God is worthy and he can be trusted, he can be depended on. 
And when you and I grab a hold of that in our lives, when you and I recognize this is, who, this is the name of God, this is who he shows himself to be, then the last thing we're going to do is blaspheme it. The last thing we want to do is think of it like it's trivial or it's inconstant. It's like, what does that matter? No, when we, when we receive the name of God into our lives and we treasure that thing, we don't want to blaspheme. We want to honor the name of God. We want to worship the name of God. We want to we live our lives to hallow his name. Psalm 68 verse 4 says, Sing to God. Sing in the praise of his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds. Rejoice before him. His name is the Lord. I'm going to invite the worship team up as we close. But I want to encourage you today to consider God's name. In Romans chapter 10, the Apostle Paul writes this, There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Now this is the important part here. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Did you catch that? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Simply calling on the name of the Lord has the power to save you. That's how powerful his name is. That's how powerful his name is. It has the power to save. It has the power to heal. It has the power to deliver and to restore. That is who God is. May we honor and glorify and put our hope in his name this morning. Well, thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out our church website at ebenezerbaptist.ca. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can let us know by clicking like and by subscribing to our podcast channel. God bless you and thanks for listening.